Welcome to A Dream and a Fear. I'm your host, Max. And I'm Hugo. In this series of podcasts, we'll be diving into the lives, motivations, and legacies of some of history's greatest explorers. Hello and welcome to the third episode of A Dream and a Fear. After two episodes focusing on the Antarctic, we now turn our attention to the Middle East. Elevated to household name following the 1962 hit, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence's incredible story has continued to captivate audiences. Today we hope to dive into Lawrence's life, but also use his story as a vehicle to explain the wider political decisions at the time and how they've come to affect and shape the Middle East. To discuss Lawrence's fascinating life, we're joined by author and historian Neil Faulkner. Like Lawrence, Neil started his life as an archaeologist, and in 2016, following 10 years of research into the military campaigns of Lawrence, he produced the acclaimed book Lawrence of Arabia's War. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you. Most welcome. Neil, to start, can you tell us a bit about Lawrence's early life? His upbringing was slightly unconventional for a political officer at the time. Very unconventional, and um, it was a bit of a family secret uh, that he was illegitimate, as were his four brothers, because his father, a member of the Anglo-Irish gentry, had fallen in love with the governess of his children and had run off with her, abandoning his wife and four daughters. And because uh, uh, Thomas Chapman which was in fact his name, because Thomas Chapman's uh, wife would never grant a divorce, it was never possible for him to legitimise the relationship with Lawrence's mother, Sarah Juna. So they lived under an assumed name, Lawrence. They eventually settled in North Oxford and they maintained a facade of upper-middle-class respectability, Um, but it was fairly clear to Lawrence at a probably we don't know exactly when but at a fairly early stage in his life that uh, he was in fact illegitimate that his parents were not married that the family was odd in in the fact that it had very few friends there was no wider family they had to keep themselves to themselves lest the secret got out because of course in the context of the time in the late 19th century, living as part of the upper middle class in an extremely morally judgmental and morally repressive framework, the stigma of an illicit relationship and illegitimacy would be absolutely devastating for the family. So Lawrence becomes aware at an early stage, as I say, we don't know exactly when, that things are a bit odd. And I think that has a profound effect on his direction of travel um, as a young man uh, growing up in Oxford at the time, I think it means he becomes um, a romantic as a kind of escape from um, a, a, a social reality which he can't really come to terms with. And his romanticism takes a particular form. He becomes obsessed, absolutely obsessed, with the Middle Ages Uh, specifically very interested in the Arthurian romances and in the Crusades. Um, This obsession is the reason why when he goes to university, he attends the local university, Oxford, um, he chooses to study the medieval period. Uh, That becomes his specialism. Um, And in actual fact, his first encounter with the Middle East is when he goes on a walking tour of Syria between his second and third year uh, at uh, Oxford um, in order to collect information about Crusader castles for his undergraduate dissertation. So you've got somebody who is uh, in escape from um, a reality, which he can't really come to terms with, which he can't properly adjust to, escaping into a kind of medieval, an imagined medieval fantasy world, in a sense, to the point where it becomes his university subject and also for the first time brings him into contact with the Middle East. Thank you, Neil. Um, So you've just sort of touched upon how Lawrence perhaps uh, reflects that tendency to romanticise the pastoral or the uncontaminated. And I was just wondering if you could tell us how this affects his view of the Middle East and particularly of the Bedouin. 
Yeah, and I think you're, you're, you're right to put it like that, because, I mean, he, he uses this kind of terminology himself, particularly in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And I think what he's... I mean, he imagines, of course, this medieval world full of Arthurian heroes and crusader knights and so on. He imagines it in much the same way as people like William Morris and other romantics imagine it. Um, it's an imagined medieval past that never really um, existed. And he imagines that to be sort of morally pure and uncontaminated by modernity. And he's seeking... Um, that kind of world when he goes out to the Middle East, um, I mean, for the first time, obviously, uh, when he's doing his um, undergraduate uh, work. And he becomes very interested in the Middle East because of his encounter uh, with the people of the Middle East, who, of course, are effectively pre-modern. So they're still living a very traditional kind of life. But in particular, that is true of the Bedouin of the desert. And then uh, this interest in the people of the Middle East, and, and in particular the Bedouin, um, is, uh, it becomes a, a complete obsession, really, when he is, is shoehorned into his first job by his academic mentors at Oxford, uh, which is to work as what we would nowadays call an assistant director or deputy director on a major excavation at Carchemish, which is a, basically a Hittite site, uh, na nowadays located on the Syrian-Turkish uh, uh, border. And he works there for four years as an archaeologist. And in actual fact, even between excavation seasons, he sometimes chooses not to travel home, but prefers to travel around the Middle East. And he ends up with a, a deep knowledge of the language, a deep knowledge of the landscape, and in particular, a deep knowledge of the culture uh, of the Middle East, and in particular the culture of the Bedouin, which uh, he and, and it, he sees the Bedouin as these people who are in a kind of almost like a kind of uh, a primitive savage state of purity, uncontaminated by the modern world. While many men found themselves on the Western Front at the outbreak of the war, Lawrence instead ended up in Arabia. Can you give us some context to what the Middle East was prior to the First World War and what interests did Lawrence and also the British have in that region? Well, the critical thing, of course, um, for the British uh, is the Suez Canal, which is the key choke point, really, uh, you know, in, in the world as far as the British Empire is concerned, because the Suez Canal is the connection between the homeland and the empire in uh, the east most obviously um, India and huge amounts of manpower and material and supplies are flowing through the Suez Canal to sustain the war effort once uh, the First World War is underway. So the British are very very sensitive about the Suez Canal and therefore they are very concerned indeed when the Ottoman Empire comes into the First World War on the side of Imperial Germany and uh, Austria-Hungary which happens late October, October, early November 1914, so fairly early um, in the First World War. There's an immediate concern about the security of the canal. Uh, the Turks are in control of virtually the whole of what we now call the Middle East. They're on the other side of Sinai. Uh, they're in Palestine. And in fact, there is a, there's an attempt to attack the canal early in 1915. So the British are compelled to pour uh, troops into Egypt. They have about 100,000 troops stationed in Egypt, despite the ferocity of the fighting on the Western Front, because they are so concerned to maintain control of Egypt. They're worried about a, a revolt, actually, in Egypt, but so that they've got the, the Suez Canal secure. And that leads on, uh, in the course of time, to a British offensive, where they put a push across Sinai, uh, in the course of 1915-1916 and eventually are mounting a major campaign in Palestine in 1917 which is really an attempt to push the Turks right back um, away from the canal and that then morphs into a wider scheme for a remodelling and a repartitioning uh, of the Middle East between the imperial powers on the assumption that the Ottoman Empire is going to go down to defeat. Brilliant. Thank you, Neil. And so 
could you maybe explain for our listeners a bit how Lawrence fits into this picture, and especially as a, a figure who has very little military experience at the time? Yes, it's interesting that um, he, he had virtually none um, at all, um, and yet he comes to play this uh, major uh, military role. Um, he was an amateur uh uh, wartime officer of course huge numbers of amateur wartime officers because I mean that's what most young men of his uh, class did at the outbreak of the war they volunteered for service and they were uh, turned into um, officers uh, Lawrence is different from most in that because he has um, Arab expertise Middle Eastern expertise he's basically fluent in Arabic uh, by this time and also has a very considerable knowledge um, of the region uh, when he volunteers for service um, and then when the Ottoman Empire comes into the war he's uh, shipped out to Cairo to work as an intelligence officer and for the first two years of the war I mean right up until uh, October 1916 he's basically doing a desk job I mean he's there you know, reading newspapers, um, examining captured papers, interrogating deserters and prisoners, uh, preparing maps and so on. Um, it's very much a kind of headquarters job uh, and one that he's increasingly embarrassed about, in fact, because before he first goes into action, two of his f uh, four brothers have actually been killed um, on the Western Front. And, you know, Lawrence gives us to believe, and I'm sure it's the case, that he, he felt guilty about the fact that he had this safe desk job in Cairo um, away uh, from the fighting. And uh, as you sort of briefly mentioned there, in, in 1916, the Arab re Revolution against the Ottomans begins, um, in part backed by the British. Can you give us a bit of context to who, the, who that was, what tribes were involved mm. And what, well, what, what were their sort of aims? Well, I mean, an alliance of uh, Bedouin tribes uh, in support um, of uh, the Emir uh, Hussein of uh, Mecca and Medina, the two holy cities of Islam, of course, which are in the Hejaz region of Western Central Arabia. And Hussein was ostensibly uh, a subject of the Ottoman Empire, but he had political ambition. Um, political ambition that was shared by his four sons um, who were connected with a wider Arab nationalist uh, underground movement. Now that movement was well represented in some of the major cities of the Middle East uh, like Beirut and Damascus and uh, Baghdad but in particular it was quite well represented among Arab officers serving in the Ottoman army. So what you've got is a movement within the Ottoman Empire, which is a kind of embryonic Arab nationalist uh, movement, but one where the Hashemite family of the Emir Hussein, they're seeking to turn themselves into the leadership of this embryonic Arab nationalist movement. And of course, because they are based in the Hejaz region, because they're based in um, Arabia, they're based on the two um, holy cities. The revolt when it begins in June 1916, and it begins then because Hussein has been given to believe that if he comes openly um, into revolt against the Ottoman Empire, he will be supported in that by the, uh, the British. Um, it comes in, in June 1916, uh, but of course it begins in the Hejaz uh, region, relatively remote, of course, from the main fighting fronts um, at the time. And then with uh, the revolt actually hanging by a thread in October 1916. I mean, the Turks, they send, they send troops down the Hejaz Railway to uh, Medina. Uh, those troops, about 10,000 of them, go on to the offensive. Uh, the Bedouin uh, 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 sort of desert the Bedouin faced with modern weaponry, a modern army on the offensive, drift away. The rebellion is, is hanging by a thread. And that is the context for Lawrence's first arrival in the region, where, although he's still a relatively junior officer, he, he accompanies a British diplomat, Ronald Storrs, 
on what is effectively a fact-finding mission, where the British are trying to work out what should we do to prop up this flagging revolt against the Ottoman Empire. The British, of course, very keen to do that because they want to see as many Ottoman soldiers as possible tied down in Arabia rather than fighting in either Sinai or Palestine. Fantastic. So the accounts of Lawrence's involvement then against the Ottomans highlights incredible bravery and arguably even recklessness, um, and none more so than his campaigner Akbar. I was just wondering if perhaps you could set the scene of what he did up to that point before he gets fully involved. What led him to this kind of, uh, to the heroic feats that he was later to, to, to be involved with? Well, he, he goes back after the October, you know, fact-finding mission and he makes his report. And then a little while later, in December uh, 1916, uh, he's back again in the region on a liaison mission and something very curious uh, happens, which Lawrence alludes to in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And we really only have Lawrence's own testimony for this. But a relationship which has been initiated in the October mission then seems to be consolidated in December 1916 on this second visit. Um, a relationship between Prince Faisal who is one of the sons of Hussein and one of the field commanders of the Arab revolt. And this young amateur uh, wartime officer who's really an, an academic, really an archaeologist, both relatively young men, but um, a, a very close relationship forms between them. And Faisal requests of the British that they should appoint Lawrence permanently to his staff as a liaison officer. Now, how do we explain this? Well, I think it's because Lawrence is not like other officers. He's not a regular officer. Uh, he's not conventional. Um, he's uh, a maverick intellectual. He's a romantic. He identifies with the Bedouin. He's not really properly on message as far as British imperialism um, is concerned because he identifies so strongly with the Arab cause and in particular with the Bedouin. He has an empathy uh, with the Bedouin and is actually rooting for the Arabs as the First World War unfolds. And I think Faisal takes to him very, very strongly because he picks up on that fact um, that Lawrence is really uh, on the side of the Arabs. So from uh, December 1916 onwards, we have Lawrence permanently attached to Faisal's staff. And then in the early part of 1917, he's involved in a number of military operations. Not, he's not the only one. There are other British officers as well who are also involved in doing this, but involved in a number of military operations where they are carrying out attacks on the railway line, the Hejaz railway line, which runs all the way from Damascus um, down to Medina. It's 800 miles of railway running through uh, most of it through a kind of desert wilderness. And this is the key supply line that is keeping a garrison of 10,000 Ottoman soldiers at Medina supplied. And these pinprick attacks coming all the time on the railway line have the effect of tying down very large numbers of Ottoman soldiers in a series of static garrison duties really at different railway stations along the line in an attempt to defend the line against these Bedouin guerrilla attacks supported by uh, uh, British, we might call them nowadays, special forces officers who were there with their special expertise, um, you know, there are machine gun specialists and mortar specialists and explosives specialists and so on. They're giving the kind of special forces um, extra weight uh, to enable these Bedouin attacks to be particularly effective. Lawrence is part of that campaign against the Hejaz Railway. Uh, yeah, brilliant, thank you, Neil. And I was just wondering if you could then uh, expand a bit on, on the, the, the campaign at Aqaba, just for our listeners for, to hear about what happened there. Aqaba is, is absolutely critical. It's really the hinge on which the entire war turns, both in a political sense and in a military sense. What becomes clear um, to Faisal in the spring of 1917 
is that the British are very reluctant to see Arab forces move northwards out of Arabia into uh, Syria. Because if they move into Syria, they will then become major players, potentially, in the reconfiguring of the uh, Middle East. And they will come into contact with uh, parts of that underground Arab nationalist uh, network and presumably energise it and turn the Arabs into significant players um, in the Middle East. In particular, the British are under pressure from the French because the intention uh, between these two allies is that the Middle East will be carved up between them after the First World War. The famous Sykes-Picot Agreement is concocted in 1916 and the gist of it is, I mean it's a complicated story, but the gist of it is that the French are to get what, what we now know as um, Lebanon and Syria and the British are to get what we now know as uh, Israel, Palestine, uh, Jordan and Iraq. That's, the, you know, that's effectively what it amounts to and it's roughly how it turns out uh, in practice, which means a carving out of the Arabs of any idea of a united Arab state spanning the Middle East, notwithstanding the fact that the British had given Hussein the clear impression that if he uh, revolted against the Ottoman Empire, if he came into the war on the same side as the British and the French, this would potentially be the prize that would be given to the Arabs at the end of the war. Now, this is the context for, for the Aqaba campaign because Faisal realising that he's being blocked by his British advisers, his British uh, supporters, uh, confides uh, his concerns to Lawrence. Lawrence, in turn, confides his knowledge of the Sykes-Picot um, agreement. So there's a kind of secret conspiracy now between these two men to upset this imperialist uh, carve-up. And... Lawrence joins a small commando force which sets out in April 1917 on a very, very long, it's a 600-mile journey through the desert, 50 of them to start with, but as they move through northern Arabia, they're building up the support as they go, particularly in the Hawaitat tribe, and then they circle round and they come into what is now... Uh, southern Jordan and as they do that they, they cut west and then southwest raising the uh, the settled village tribesmen um, of what is now southern Jordan as they do so they all belong to essentially the same tribe the uh, the Hawatat and they capture Aqaba from the landward side and by the time they take it at the beginning of July 1917 their army has swollen uh, to about 2,000 Bedouin uh, warriors altogether. Now, when this happens, nobody at British headquarters has the slightest idea where Lawrence has gone. He basically disappears off the radar uh, for the best part of uh, two and a half months. Nobody knows where he's gone. And he tells us quite explicitly that the, real, the reason why he hadn't told them what he was intending to do was because he feared he would be given a direct order not to go had he done so. In other words, our man is in collaboration with the Arab leaders with the intention of seizing a forward base which would enable the Arabs from Aqaba then to project their military forces into Syria and to raise an Arab revolt spreading across uh, the entire region and putting the Arabs in a position to challenge uh, the intention of the Sykes-Picot secret agreement. Brilliant and so you've obviously implied there that his knowledge of the Sykes-Picot agreement affected his relationship and his dealings with the Arabs. Um, could you could you expand a bit on when he knew the, the, the Arabs cause was probably not, not going to end well? We don't know exactly when, but what we can say is this, that Lawrence and the other officers who were attached to the Arab revolt were aware of what was going on at a very, very early stage indeed. Lawrence was not the only one uh, who was deeply 
cut up uh, by the idea that a betrayal was being perpetrated, that the Arabs had been given to believe one thing in the discussions that they had had with the British in 1915 and 1916, and at the same time the British were uh, coming up with this secret agreement with the uh, French. There were a number of other officers who also expressed grave reservations about this and who also felt that what was actually happening here is that, you know, in a sense, men were being led into battle and sometimes being led to their deaths on the basis of a lie. And if I've already suggested that what the, the Aqaba mission is politically and militarily the turning point of the war. It's also the turning point for Lawrence's um, mental stability because as soon as the Arab forces are moving out of Arabia and beginning to move um, into the heartlands of the Middle East, which is what the seizure of Aqaba facilitates, as soon as that happens, Lawrence is aware that then what's happening in a very obvious way is that men are fighting uh, in territory and for control of territory which under the terms of the Sykes-Picot agreement has been promised to others and it's clear from uh, what is reported uh, by, by associates of Lawrence about his uh, mental health, it's clear um, from things that he, he writes in letters and in his uh, diary at the time, it's very clear uh, in his post-war memoir, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, that those uh, demons of guilt are beginning to form uh, in his head. Uh, the demons of guilt which, in a sense, tear him apart psychologically, that lead to uh, what is effectively a mental breakdown and leave him um, a wreck, a psychological wreck, at the end of the war, actually quite close to suicide, I think, in the early 1920s. It's because of this terrible betrayal that becomes visceral in its implications once the Arabs have moved out of Arabia into Syria. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that. And in obviously in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he describes himself both as a fraud and a charlatan, partly because of those reasons. Yes, exactly that, um, exactly that. Moving on, and uh, just as the Sykes-Picot Treaty looked to sort of artificially carve up the Middle East. In 1917, the British further betrayed the Arabs by backing the Zionist cause for an independent state in modern day Israel. Can you offer a little on that um, and also the consequences? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it's less clear cut than Sykes-Picot. Um, Lawrence is less um, hostile to the idea of a Jewish homeland than he is to the idea of the Arabs basically being carved out uh, of the rest of the Middle East. But Faisal and the other Arab leaders are uh, very critical indeed of the Balfour Declaration. This of course is the statement uh, to leading Zionist figures in uh, Britain by uh, Arthur Balfour, the then uh, British Home Secretary, that the British, if they were victorious, turned out to be victorious in the First World War and were in control of the uh, Middle East, uh, would facilitate the creation of a uh, Jewish homeland. Now, the problem with that, of course, was that there was no part of the Middle East that was unoccupied. The intended Jewish homeland uh, would be in what was then called um, Palestine. The whole of Palestine was occupied. The vast majority of the people who lived in it were essentially um, uh, Arabs and in fact even the relatively small Jewish population um, in the area at the time were Arabic or most of them were actually Arabic uh, speaking and were completely sort of integrated into local society. So if there was going to be a Jewish homeland and presumably therefore relatively large numbers um, of Jews from elsewhere um, uh, emigrating to settle uh, in the homeland where were they going to be accommodated, where were their farms going to be, where were their businesses going to be, and so on. And the only possible answer to that question um, was that, well, it would have to be taken from people who already uh, possessed it. So what's actually happening here is that a, a terrible tragedy 
which unfolds through the 20s, uh, 30s and 40s, and of course is still uh, with us in a very, very real sense, begins to unfold as a result of the Balfour um, Declaration. And in the 20s and the 30s, when the British are in control um, of Palestine, uh, as it still was at that time. The State of Israel, of course, is created in 1948. But large numbers of uh, Zionist settlers are coming in in the course of the 20s and the 30s. And where are they settling? Well, what's actually happening is that the international Zionist movement is raising money abroad and using that money to buy land from absentee Arab landlords who are more than willing very often to sell and then Zionist settlers are pitching up and turfing out um, Arab tenant farmers who in some cases belong to families who've been working a particular in a work particular village living in a particular village uh, for many generations so you get the beginning of that terrible process um, of uh, dispossession of the Palestinian people that is still at the very heart, of course, of the ongoing crisis in the Middle East today. So we end up seeing the Sykes-Picot Agreement defining many of the modern states that we see today, whether it's Jordan, um, Iraq, etc. But what that did was it grouped tribes and religious groups under a national banner where arguably there was very little in common between the different groups. You know, this this desire to create a centrally governed nation, just as we see in you know modern day Afghanistan, has often been blamed for a lot of the problems that persist in, in those regions. How far would you actually agree with that statement, Neil? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, what happens is you get, um, I mean, it's finalised in 1921 at the Cairo conference, exactly where the lines are going to be drawn across the Middle East. And it, But it is true that to a very large extent indeed, the lines that are drawn in 1921, many of which had originally been drawn on the maps uh, that were prepared as part of the Sykes-Picot process in 1916, those lines, now a century old, are still there. They are still the borders. It's still the border between Jordan and Iraq and Syria and so on. What you have is an imperialist settlement which is designed to divide up the Middle East at the time between the different imperial powers and then as um, Arab nationalist movements emerge they emerge in the framework of those those artificial states really which have been created as a result of the First World War and there are all kinds um, of um, conflicts between different states but also within different states because the Middle East is of course a complex mosaic, a political mosaic, a religious mosaic, um, an ethnographic mosaic, which has been developing, which has been evolving for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I mean, the Middle East is as complex sociologically as Europe. And those lines that uh, are drawn as borders cut across other lines lines of difference, lines of ethnicity, lines of religious separation and so on, both within and between these different states. So you have an absolute uh, cocktail of potential conflict. And it's not really an exaggeration to say that the Middle East has been at war with itself um, for the century or so since the impl implementation of this settlement. Uh, a settlement, of course, which Lawrence, during the war and after the war, uh, deplored and did his very best to alter. So you alluded also earlier to the fact, Neil, that even under the Ottoman you know, Empire, which was a century governed empire, there was a lot of sort of unrest bubbling. And, you know, the Sykes-Picot Agreement obviously has its problems that we see manifested today. But do you think that it's realistic to say that if there had been an Arab nation, I mean, in a sense, is would it would it, whatever settlement was reached would it have been doomed? Um, uh, impossible, really, to answer questions like that. I'm very I'm very hesitant about questions like that as a historian, um, because had things played out um, significantly differently then everything else changes um, as well. And very soon it becomes impossible to 
uh, imagine what the various ramifications might have been. I think what I'll do is I'll answer the question by making this general point, um, which is not a, a direct answer to the question, but it's a comment, really, on the nature of the settlement that was imposed on the Middle East. The whole world was in turmoil, of course, um, from 1917 really until 1923, because overlaying uh, on the, uh, the military conflict, the First World War, you have this upsurge of revolution, of revolt from below that sweeps right across the world. It starts, of course, in Russia, but it spreads across a large part of Europe and then across the wider world. And it's a kind of revolt of uh, soldiers and sailors and workers and peasants against the war, but also against the system which has given rise to the war. And I think it's probably true to say that world capitalism was closer to being overthrown by international socialist revolution in this period than it had been at any other time. In large parts of, the, uh, of this world in turmoil, we get a revolt from below which breaks through, most obviously in Russia, but not just in Russia. There are a good number of other examples where there are major social changes brought about by popular revolt um, from below. Nothing remotely like this happens in the Middle East. It's not for want of trying. There's a major revolution in Egypt in uh, 1919 against British rule. There's a major revolution in Iraq in 1920. There is active resistance in 1920 in Syria to the attempt by the French, the successful attempt by the French, to come in and uh, take over by booting out Faisal. So it's not as if there aren't mass movements from below um, in the Middle East, but all of those movements are crushed. They're crushed by imperialism. They're crushed by military power. And what the imperial powers do by knocking back those popular movements is they shut off the possibility that the ordinary people of the Middle East might have come into their own and become part of that broader international movement where ordinary people were beginning to reshape the world uh, in their own uh, interests. So there's no peasant revolution, for example, in the Middle East, as there might have been, that parallels the peasant revolution which uh, underpinned the Bolshevik revolution in Russia and then the Bolshevik victory um, in the Civil War. Thanks, Neil. Moving away from the politics and sort of back to Lawrence, you've described him in the past as a liberal imperialist. Could you explain why you've said that and give us a bit of a picture of what his vision for the Middle East was? I, I, I use the term <coughs> liberal imperialist because I think Lawrence's conception uh, was that, uh, potentially at least, the British Empire could play a progressive role where the British Empire was acting as the facilitator of a process whereby the people of the Middle East would move towards uh, nationhood. So it's the idea really of a, of a paternalistic guiding of people towards the creation of a nation. Now I don't believe that's the way things work at all. I think imperialism is always nasty. Um, I think it's always immoral. I think it's always a matter of the imperialists seeking control over other people's territory, resources, uh, labour and so on in order to exploit them, in order to enrich themselves at the expense of those who are dominated by the imperial system. I don't think any empire is built in the interests of the victims of empire, the subjects of empire. So I think Lawrence was very naive about that. And there, was, there were plenty of examples in the world at the time of a thoroughgoing anti-imperialist um, alternative. Lawrence is never part of that. Lawrence is very much a product of his own uh, class. He never breaks with his own class in any fundamental sense. He remains part albeit a maverick part of the British establishment. His perspective remains that what you have to do is persuade people of power and influence to follow one course rather than another. And I would suggest, incidentally, um, that he's very similar in that regard to Gertrude Bell. Gertrude Bell 
they knew each other quite well. Uh, they were both very prominent uh, British Arabists at the time. They were both involved in the First World War, both involved in the post-war settlement, both there at the Cairo Conference in 1921, uh, both uh, supporters of the Hashemites and wanting to see the Hashemite leaders of the Arab revolt in positions of power um, after uh, the war, but in the framework provided by British imperialism. So Abdullah becomes the, um, uh, becomes the emir uh, in Transjordan under British auspices and uh, Faisal becomes the king in Iraq um, under British auspices. But most of us nowadays looking at that situation would say that these are puppet rulers, these are client regimes effectively created and managed um, by the empire but with a degree of approval from liberal imperialists uh, like Lawrence and Bell. Fascinating stuff. And um, could you also comment on whether you think that the distrust or much of the distrust that you see in the Middle East today towards the West has its root in this period or do you think it goes back further? Um, I think it does go back further because, of course, European intervention in the Middle East is really taking off um, in the late 18th, early 19th century. It really begins, in a sense, with Napoleon's uh, Egyptian expedition. But it's ramping up through the 19th century, and without doubt it reaches a climax at the time of the First World War, where you have the European imperial powers. They've already grabbed a lot of um, Arab territory. Of course, the French have got um, Algeria and Tunisia. Uh, the Italians are, uh, are grabbing um, uh, Libya, the British have got Egypt, but what you see is that expanding now in the context of the First World War to um, a Middle East as a whole, which is dominated by the European powers. Yes, of course, that's a result of the First World War, and that uh, gives um, uh, a sense in the Middle East which is still there, where there's a very strong sense of history, I should say. I mean, on the Arab street, among ordinary Arab people, a very strong sense of this history. Uh, there is this this sense that the Middle East has been a prey uh, to imperialism and that, that, that feeds into uh, the politics um, of the present. It's one of the reasons incidentally why um, if we take the example of the uh, Palestinians, um, it, support for the Palestinians is absolutely universal among uh, ordinary Arabs across the whole of uh, the Middle East. I mean nobody for a moment uh, would support Israel against the Palestinians because Israel is seen uh, essentially as an intrusion, as a product of imperialism, created in the, under the auspices of imperialism and still heavily funded, heavily armed uh, by, the, uh, by the United States. That alliance between Israel and the United States, which is such a central feature really of the politics of the Middle East still today, bitterly resented um, on the Arab street um, still. If I can just use my personal experience for a moment, um, taking a, an archaeological team uh, to uh, Jordan, southern Jordan, um, in the context of the Great Arab Revolt Project, where we were looking at the archaeology of the First World War, looking at the, uh, the archaeology of Lawrence's War, and, and therefore needing to establish relationships with local people at a time when the war in Iraq uh, was raging. The project actually began in 2006. It was absolutely essential. Uh, and we were asked this at a very early stage, and on a number of different occasions we were asked it. It's essential, really, that we said, which was true, this was our position, um, that we opposed the war. I mean, we were even able to tell our Arab colleagues that some of us had been on the big anti-war demonstrations um, in London and that we supported the Palestinian cause. And relationships relaxed as soon as we said that, as soon as we were not Westerners with a Western perspective on the Middle East, but we were Western scholars who understood the politics of the Middle East to the point that we were able to identify with the Arab cause. Everything becomes much more relaxed. It's that visceral in the Middle East still today as a result of what happened at the time of the First World War. Thank you, Neil. On return to England, Lawrence became the first man to turn down a knighthood. He also published his major works, which you mentioned earlier, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, 
Could you tell us about these later years in England as well as his sort of tragic ending at, at the end of his life? Well, th th those few years immediately after the war are curious in a way. Um, they are as busy as Lawrence's period of wartime uh, service, which incidentally is relatively short. I mean, it's only 18 months, really, that he's actively involved in the revolt. But by the end of it, he's broken, I mean, psychologically. And there's a kind of slow motion mental breakdown unfolding. I've already said I think he was quite close to suicide in the early 1920s. And then there's this curious decision, this bizarre decision that he makes um, uh, in the early 1920s to go into uh, the ranks of the RAF uh, to serve as an ordinary aircraftsman and to refuse promotion, to uh, which he remains his position right up until the end of his military service in 1935. But um, before that, in the few years before that, between the end of the war and his beginning uh, again in the RAF, his beginning military service again in the RAF, he, even though he's suffering a kind of mental breakdown, he's doing two other things. He's writing this great war memoir, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which can be read in all sorts of different ways, one of which is a kind of huge act of catharsis where he's trying to lay bare the demons of guilt which are preying upon him. But he's also extremely active in post-war diplomacy. Um, he's there at the Versailles Peace Conference as an advisor to Faisal in 1919. I've already said he's there at the 1921 uh, Cairo Conference when he's a, an advisor to uh, Churchill. Uh, he's constantly lobbying for the Arabs, you know, writing letters to people of importance, talking to people of importance, writing letters to the newspapers and so on. So he's got this very active um, public life. And the other curious thing about what is happening in this very busy period of his life is he's being turned into a celebrity or what he himself describes as a matinee idol. And that is not through his own efforts, but as a result of the efforts of uh, Lowell Thomas, um, an American uh, newsman who becomes a kind of impresario and uh, creates this show, which goes out first of all on Broadway in 1919 and then transfers to Covent Garden and then tours um, other leading venues, eventually tours the English-speaking uh, world actually hugely, hugely successful show, which is a kind of mixture of um, what were called lantern slides at the time, some moving images, dancing girls, lots of music, and a racy commentary from Thomas, which increasingly has Lawrence as a major focus to the point where, this is a blockbuster success, it transforms Lawrence into a household name. It has the same kind of impact, actually, in 1919, as the David Lean movie will have in 1962, in a sense, in relaunching the Lawrence uh, legend. So all of these curious things happening at the same time. And then the decision. Um, once the Cairo conference is out of the way, once Lawrence feels he's done everything he possibly can to get the best possible deal for the Arabs, his decision to go uh, into the ranks of the RAF in 1922, He's booted out of the RAF because he actually joins it initially without admitting who he is. He then goes briefly into the Royal Tank Corps, admitting who he is, and then wheedles his way back into the RAF. So he spends most of the post-war years in the RAF, and he's serving in the RAF right up until the beginning of 1935. And then within a couple of months of retirement from the RAF... Uh, he suffers his fatal motorcycle accident when he's returning uh, to his home, Clouds Hill, um, in Dorset, and he has a collision uh, with one of the two boys on who are riding uh, bicycles. He loses control um, of the motorbike. He's thrown off it. He lands on his head, not wearing a crash helmet, of course. People generally speaking, didn't wear crash helmets at the time. He lands in uh, on his head uh, uh, and he becomes, um, he's concussed, he's unconscious, um, 
and six days later, without ever recover, uh, recovering uh, consciousness, um, he dies. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, a rather tragic end to his life. You sort of alluded to it there, but as you know, British uh, individuals here, we sort of fall into that romantic mysticism around the man. But how is Lawrence perceived from the Arab context? Well, it depends who you talk to, really. Um, th there's as wide a range of views about Lawrence in the Middle East as there's a wide range of views about Lawrence um, in the Western world. I mean, people who regard him, you know, here, there are people who regard him as a charlatan, a faker, a serial liar, a self-promoting imposter, and others who regard him as a kind of uh, military genius who had a major uh, impact in the outcome of the war in the Middle East um, uh, between 1914 and 1918. Now, the same in the Middle East, a very, very wide range of opinion, though the balance of opinion is unquestionably different. So the great majority um, of educated um, Arabs would consider Lawrence to be possibly simply nothing more than a straightforward representative of British imperialism, um, that some might be a little bit more uh, sympathetic than that, but they certainly wouldn't regard him as one of the major uh, uh, makers and shakers uh, of the Arab revolt. They would be very insistent uh, that the Arab revolt was led by uh, the Arabs uh, themselves and that Lawrence was simply a liaison officer, a weapons specialist um, and, uh, and so on. Now, my own view um, is that that, is, uh, that that Arab perspective is itself something of a distortion that underplays the fascinating character of Lawrence. What makes Lawrence so fascinating is that he was genuinely conflicted he was absolutely on the side of the Arabs. He didn't necessarily properly understand the best way in which the Arab cause might have been advanced. But I think his identification with the Arabs was absolutely uh, genuine. He wasn't a mainstream conventional British officer. He wasn't a mainstream representative uh, of a kind of raw uh, British uh, imperial um, interest. And to some degree, the folk tradition in southern Jordan which we became familiar with during the Great Arab Revolt Project, is perhaps a little bit closer to uh, the truth, um, which is that Lawrence was one of the leaders uh, of the Arab Revolt. And the view there is that there were maybe half a dozen key figures um, in the Arab Revolt, but there's a kind of folk memory that's been passed down through the generations that has Lawrence as one of those. And that does seem to reflect what we hear reported at the time by witnesses who saw the degree to which uh, Lawrence was regarded by the Arab Bedouin uh, fighters as one of their leaders, a view which was coloured, of course, by the fact that he was the man who supplied the guns, who supplied the camels, who supplied the gold uh, to pay them. But he was also one of the men who delivered military victory. And military victory meant the looting of trains, the looting of stations, transforming many of these Bedouin tribesmen into men of wealth um, in a way that they could not possibly have imagined coming from the impoverishment um, of the Arabian desert. So, yeah, that's really, really interesting to hear, Neil. And um, sort of on the theme of Lawrence's legacy, to, so to speak, do you think that maybe part of the Western interest in Lawrence can be or could could have been attributed to the psychological need for a more chivalrous ideal after the horrors of the Western Front? I think that's absolutely right. I, th I think uh, you can see it actually in the Lowell Thomas show. What Thomas, I mean, most of Thomas's material, which he had collected when he went out to the Middle East in 1918, concerned the Egyptian expeditionary force and the conventional military operations that were being mounted in Palestine by General Allenby. But what Thomas picked up on was the fact that audiences were much more interested in a character who initially played a relatively small part in the show, who was Lawrence. This amateur officer, this young man wearing Arab robes, 
fighting what looked to be a much more romantic war out in the desert at the head of Bedouin guerrillas. Because, of course, this is a period when there's a tremendous reaction from the horrors of the First World War, and in particular a reaction um, against the establishment, against the politicians and the generals who were seen as presiding over it. It's difficult now to recapture it because nobody had imagined that it could be anything like what it turned out to be when it began in 1914, ending up with 15 million dead through four years of gruelling carnage. This, in a sense, is the birth of modernity, the beginning of the modern world, a tremendous reaction um, against that. And it doesn't really end because, of course, in the interwar period, you have the Depression, you have mass unemployment, uh, you have... Uh, the rise of fascism, then you have the Second World War. This is our world, uh, in a sense. It's the world that comes into being as a result of the First World War. And I think absolutely right to say what people are looking for is they're looking for romantic heroes. They're looking from an escape, for an escape from this uh, reality. And one of the reasons why the Lawrence legend goes on and Lawrence is being endlessly reconfigured, endlessly discussed. He's there in films, he's there in documentaries, he's there in new biographies, um, he's there in all kinds of different uh, cultural treatments. Uh, he's a, uh, an example of celebrity culture, which is constantly being uh, reconfigured um, to satisfy uh, new audiences and audiences of people who are, I think, drawn to the idea of uh, romantic heroes in a setting which is so different uh, from the modern world. It's, it's part of the success, of course, of the David Lean movie um, in 1962. I think that is very much there in the interwar period. That's why Lawrence becomes a celebrity um, in the po uh, immediately after the war, and it's why Lawrence is still very much with us. Neil, to sort of follow on from that, given the sort of post-colonial theories of today and the critiques of Orientalism, do you think it's harder to present Lawrence as a sort of boy's own hero to modern audiences? Yes, I think, I th I think it is, and I think rightly so. Um, I mean, I think people are much more sensitised now to uh, Orientalism, actually, as, a, as, a, as a, uh, um, a cultural framework, a framework for talking about um, the Middle East, and we have we haven't and I haven't said this, but I, I will say it now. Lawrence was an Orientalist. Lawrence is a very good example um, of an Orientalist because he did see the Arabs as a simple people, a backward people, who needed to be guided into their place within the modern world. This is one of the contradictory features of Orientalism, of course, that on the one hand. Uh, the Orientalist perspective will sometimes admire, to use this expression again, the primitive savage, because the primitive savage is untainted, is pure, but on the other will regard the primitive savage as precisely a primitive, um, who is actually incapable of self-government and so on. And Orientalism is absolutely a live force in the world today. You only have to think about uh, the war on terror, and the way in which since 2008 there has been a resurgence of this idea that there is an East which is alien, which is different, which is barbaric, uh, which is threatening, that feeds into, of course, uh, the racism of Islamophobia, where the Islamic religion as a whole, which is, is as diverse as any of the other, great religions in the reality, but the Islamic religion gets tainted as a particularly violent and pernicious uh, kind of religion in the context of war on terror um, propaganda. Uh, that's very much part of the modern world. I think huge numbers of people are very sensitised to that, despite the impact of the propaganda, very resistant uh, to it. And yes, um, when you talk about Lawrence, you have to put Lawrence into that framework. You have to be absolutely honest about the limitations of his politics, uh, the limitations of his um, understanding of the world, and the way in which he has been manipulated 
as a cultural figure within an essentially Orientalist framework. You can see that in, again, to mention the David Lean movie, the David Lean movie is shot through with Orientalist uh, stereotypes and it's, it's right and proper that we should be hypersensitive to that and very critical uh, of, of that kind of way uh, of talking about Lawrence. Good, great to hear uh, those uh, ideas from you, Neil. And just we're going to move on to the last few questions that we sort of wrap up each episode with. Uh, and this one is very much linked to what you were just talking about, I suppose, because we want to know what was the thing that personally drew you to T. Lawrence, given all you've just said about him. Well, um, it, I, I, I came to Lawrence as an archaeologist, um, actually, um, because I teamed up with uh, my colleague uh, Nick uh, Saunders, another conflict archaeologist. In fact, Nick was involved in First World War archaeology well before I was. Um, but when we teamed up, we had a discussion about uh, how might we push forwards uh, the conflict archaeology of the First World War as an academic discipline. Quite a lot of work had already been done on the Western Front and we wanted something that would contrast very radically indeed with that kind of archaeological imprint. Um, and we decided to go for Lawrence then because so, you know, the war in the desert, a guerrilla war in the desert, a counterinsurgency war in the desert was so radically uh, different. But also because, I know this is, this is, this was our opportunism, if you like, we realised that if we could hang the project on Lawrence's name, we would be able to sell the project to volunteers willing to pay for the experience and thus create um, a funding basis to enable us to carry out the project. And that's exactly what we succeeded in doing. We went out over nine uh, consecutive seasons, each time with a team of about uh, 30 people, 10 of whom were our core archaeological team and 20 of whom were uh, people who were essentially paying for a working holiday doing the archaeology of Lawrence of Arabia. They are, uh, they're, they're still sort of networked together and know themselves as the, as the GARPIES, the Great Arab Revolt Project uh, volunteers. Um, and we are enormous, Nick and I are enormously grateful to them for enabling us to do the project. But of course, once we had decided that we were going to do that kind of conflict archaeology, then immediately one is drawn into the whole Lawrence story, the whole biography, the whole celebrity culture, the legend, and so on. And there's quite a lot of discussion about all of those wider aspects of the Lawrence story um, in my book. Thank you, Neil. And sort of following on from that, what do you think are the most valuable lessons that Lawrence's life teaches us? I think probably the single most important uh, lesson um, is that um, imperialism um, is never the solution. It's never the answer to the question. Um, that what imperialism did at the time of the First World War was to create a completely dysfunctional uh, Middle East. And Lawrence had a sense that that was going to happen. That's why Lawrence was rooting for the Arabs. That's why Lawrence was trying to change the terms of Sykes-Picot, change things at the uh, Cairo uh, conference. We've lived now for more than a century with the consequences of that carve-up. But we've also seen since 2008 another vivid example of how imperialism creates chaos. Because by launching the war on terror, uh, what uh, Bush and Blair and then their successors have actually done is they've given rise to a uh, swathe of mayhem stretching from uh, Afghanistan, Central Asia, across the core areas of the Middle East, across North Africa and down into West Africa, a swathe of mayhem that is filled with Islamic fascism, filled with Islamist insurgency, filling that vacuum created by the imperial powers and tearing apart the lives of tens of millions of people who, who are displaced, who are lo losing their livelihoods and so on. All of that, that is, is wreckage created by an imperialism in military intervention in the modern period. That's the most crucial lesson, really, um, about 
Lawrence's life, that imperialism is not the answer to the question, never under any circumstances. And one final uh, question for you, Neil. I was wondering if, if you had the chance to sit down at the pub with Lawrence and have a drink with him today, what would be the one thing that you would ask him? Um, that's a very difficult uh, question uh, to answer. Um, and I suspect it wouldn't really matter um, what I decided the crucial question should be. He almost certainly wouldn't answer it. He wouldn't give a direct answer to it. Lawrence was notorious for his mischievousness, for his refusal to expose himself, his refusal to give straight answers to difficult questions. He was a very heavily armoured um, personality. Um, I, he was deeply, deeply neurotic. Um, he was, and that was partly to do with his repressed um, homosexuality, but more broadly, I think, um, he had deep-rooted psychological problems that meant it was extremely difficult for him to unwind and come clean with people. He had an aversion to any kind of physical contact. Um, he didn't like shaking hands with people. If you look at photographs, which Lawrence is in, um, he's never looking at the camera. He's always turned uh, away. He had a very, very armoured personality. So whatever my question would be, I wouldn't get a straight answer to it. But that said, um, I can tell you that as an archaeologist, because I have done so much work on sites associated uh, with Lawrence, unquestionably my key questions would concern some of those sites where we have carried out investigations, but we have questions left hanging about exactly what it was like uh, a century ago when Lawrence was fighting there. Wow, a tantalising prospect. And uh, yeah, we just want to say thank you so much, Neil, for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. It's been really great. You are most welcome. Yeah, and th again, from me, thank you, Neil. And um, we encourage all our listeners to go out and buy your book. It was 10 years of work and it's, it's a fantastic read. So thank you very much. Thank you.